Coming up next, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 74. Adam and Eve were not, I repeat, were not naked and uncovered, as most English texts will tell us from Genesis 2.25. Rather, instead, I'm going to take the position that they were crafty, shrewd, and very, very wise. Shalom once again. Friends, welcome to the podcast of Real Israel Talk Radio. I am Avi Ben Mordechai. And on our program today, I would like to continue where we left off on the last show, dealing with the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. On this program, this is episode number 74 of our series on biblical love. And this being said, I want to give you some advanced warning that it uh, might get a bit complicated for some of you, especially if you do not know Hebrew or perhaps are not even uh, familiar with any of the Hebrew letters. Yeah, it could get a bit complicated. And I know it does become difficult for me because this is strictly an audio program and nothing visual. So I can't actually show you what I'm talking about. You'll have to use your imagination and do the best you can to follow me. Now, I am not saying that this program is going to be complicated. Rather, it just might feel complicated because I am going to be diving into some Hebrew meanings that uh, will need all of your undivided attention. And I'm going to try very hard to make this easy to follow and to understand But uh, on your part, you are also going to have to try to stay focused on what I am going to share with you, and hopefully I won't lose you. Again, hopefully I won't lose you, but uh, do stay with me if you can, and if you start getting a little bit clouded and uh, perhaps even confusing and you're trying to follow, um, I would ask you, don't give up. And I think things will become more clear as I go through uh, the explanations. Uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to do because when you're dealing with the Hebrew language, uh, it's nice to have some visuals. But in this case, there are no visuals. So that's why I'm giving you this advanced warning, okay? Now, recall from our last program, we were dealing with the concepts of divine love developed from 1 Corinthians 13.4, which says that love, as it is defined biblically, that it suffers long, meaning that when we choose to love, it means we have chosen to give in order to meet the needs of another, and in so doing, our desire to give just does not give up easily. In fact, I think it can sometimes be interpreted as an annoyance and perhaps an intrusion to another person if that one is not ready or willing to receive what you want to give. 
Now, I think perhaps a good example of this is uh, just after a couple has a rather intense marital conflict, which sometimes that does happen, one might be ready to put the conflict behind and move on faster than the other person. I know that from my own experience being married, I sometimes just want to press on with conflict healing much faster than my wife wants to move on. And so, I might want to reach out in a giving kind of love uh, to my wife and to give my wife a hug or perhaps to reach out to take her hand as kind of my signal that is saying, look, I'm sorry, please, let's move on. But my wife might not always be ready to receive my honest, bearing, giving heart of love right at that moment. So true love, though it does suffer long, it also is willing to cool the action and back off for a time and not cross a partner's boundary because he or she might not necessarily be ready for that hug or that handhold. It is what 1 Corinthians 13.4 calls a kind love, which is understood from its Hebrew foundation as a love that is tov in Hebrew. And that means something that is beneficial to another. So in other words, true love profits a person. So it can be a husband, a wife, a friend, a neighbor, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, family member, whomever. We must not force our giving love onto another because that person may not necessarily be ready to freely receive our giving heart of love. We want to, but they may not be ready right at that moment. So therefore, it takes a lot of patience, a lot of care, a lot of loving kindness, and that is a love that is kind. Thus, divine love works in a very similar way. But at some point, the Almighty Eternal One says enough is enough. And there are cases where he will pull back his love and say, you don't want it, then I'm just not going to give it to you because I'm not going to force you into taking and responding to my love. So we don't want to push Jehovah to that limit where he says, well, you're not responding and uh, what more can I do? So I'm letting you go to take what you want to take and do what you want to do. And someone that you would like to love, perhaps they might end up pushing you over the line. And it's not that you're going to say to them, well, then I just hate you and I'm not going to give you my love. No, you don't do that. You just back off and they may never receive your heartfelt giving love. They may never want it. And if they don't want it, you can't cross that boundary and force it on them. They just may not want it, and that's the way it is. And there's nothing much more that you can do about that. Really, there isn't. Okay? We also learned from our last program that Biblical giving love is not expressed from the Hebrew word 
Kana, Kana, which is often translated into English as a love that does not envy. And you can see that here in uh, 1 Corinthians 13.4, where it is written in English that love does not envy. But uh, I'm going to take some issue with that and say that envy is not the right word that we should be looking for in this passage. Yes, I know it's translated to the English word envy, but I am not convinced that it's the correct word to put here. Rather, a better word instead of envy would be that biblical divine love gives in such a way that it is not merited, earned, sold, or acquired for a price. Because the Hebrew word kana comes from a root liknot, which means to acquire something, to buy something. And when we are buying something or acquiring something, I would simply call that a commercial trade and not love. In other words, a biblical giving type of love cannot be gained by way of a principle that we all know as, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. I'll give to you on the condition that you keep my generosity in mind, and when I need something in the future, you will be there to pay it back to me. Nope, this is not biblical love. It is not Yehovah's love. It is not the love described in 1 Corinthians 13. And it should not be our kind of love either. Because biblical love is always, I say, is always a choice, regardless of whether we get something back for it or not. However, keep in mind, Yaakov or James 5, 7 This is talking about the coming of the Messiah. But the principle still remains the same, where Yaakov writes, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Master. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the master is at hand. And then there's also another example, and that is from Yeshua's words in Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. Yeshua spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I don't find anything. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize, and if it bears fruit, well or good. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. So the principle from these two passages is that Jehovah's love for us is generous and patient and kind and beneficial, but at some point, his love does expect a response from us. It's not that he's saying, 
Well, I don't care whether I get something back for my love or not. No, he's not saying that. He's simply saying, I'll be patient, much more patient than we could ever be. I'll be kind. I'll be patient. I'll be long-suffering because that's who I am. But if I am that way, I am not going to remain that way forever and ever and ever. I expect a response is what Jehovah is saying. And if we don't respond, then he's kind of like the farmer or he's like the owner of the vineyard. At some point, he's going to say, look, I've been coming at you for a real long time and you just don't respond. So, okay, I'm going to give you your way and I'm going to just let you go. And at the end of the days, I'm going to cut it down because you were just using up the ground and not producing fruit. And we want to produce fruit. We want to respond to Jehovah's love. So don't just assume, well, he'll just love me forever and ever and ever, whether he gets something back or not. No, that's not the way it works. He is looking for a response from us and therefore looking for fruit from us. And the same is true between us and others, I would think. If someone in your family or among your friends, if they just completely are dissing you all the time and they are just turning away from your overtures to show love and to show kindness and to show patience and they just don't respond ever and they just say, ah, forget it. I don't want anything to do with you. There's nothing you can do. You can't cross their boundary and force them. And you might very well be giving a heartfelt love out to one or more people. But if there is no response for a very, very long time, and that's something between you and the Almighty Eternal One, but at some point, if they're just not responding and they're just not producing the fruit of that relationship, and they're just dissing you all the time, what are you going to do? At some point, you have to just say, cut it off. That's how I would see it. So you can't force it. So the bottom line, you should expect a response, and you should expect fruit to grow from that response, in the same way that Yehovah expects that of us. But He's long-suffering and very kind. He'll take it all the way out to the very end. And I don't know, the end is a long way for him. For us, it always seems to be a bit shorter. And we can learn to be more patient and more kind. So my point is that we are dealing with trade love versus response love. Yehovah is not in the business of trading love. He just isn't. He is in the business of responsive love. This is where we learn from 1 John 4.19 that the first one to really love us was Jehovah. We were not looking for him. No, no. He first came looking for us because Jehovah generates love within himself. Strange as that might sound. He gives because he is a generator and initiator of love. In this, 
His love makes us responders and fruit bearers. But the problem that I often see in Jewish and or Christian religious contexts is that the burden to love is on us. We're taught this from the very moment that we start to read and understand Bible translations. For example, from our previous study on Deuteronomy 6.4 and what is called the Shema, Hear, O Israel, followed by Deuteronomy or the Volim 6.5-9, which is called the Vehafta, and you shall love, we learned something very important between these two passages. We learned that the statement in Hebrew, and you shall love, does not mean the burden of love begins with us and we have to somehow generate that within ourselves and that burden to learn to love and to accept that we have to love, that it that it just has to come from us. Well, I got to tell you something. No, the burden to show love is not on us. It's on him. It's on Jehovah. And so when he sends his love out to us, then he is expecting us to respond to that love. And in responding to it, we should be able to grow some fruit of the Spirit. That's what I would think. But if this whole scenario is turned on its head and it comes out to be the other way around, where the burden of loving is on us and that we have to love, that we shall love, that we must love, if that were the case where the burden was on us To do that, then this places us in the position of giving to Jehovah, meaning we're in the driver's seat, so to speak. But instead, we know from Scripture and from our relationship with the All-Eternal One that we are the responders to Jehovah's divine love, not the generators and the giving of it. We merely respond to what we have been given. And this puts a whole new spin on the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, where we learned previously from verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, then I have, and fill in the blank for yourself. In other words, we have learned in our studies up to this point that in 1 Corinthians 13, the Hebraic context of that chapter will never, ever support the idea that I have love. It's just impossible. It can never, ever be said, I have love. Never. Rather, whatever we have is always expressed as yeshli, And that simply translates to, there is to me, or ainly, there is not or nothing to me. In other words, we are being given love. We are not generating love from within ourselves. Again, it's given to us 
from outside of ourselves. And if we attempt to turn this on its head and say or believe, I have love, or I do not have love, or fill in the blank with whatever it is that you have or you do not have, as though I or you were the generator of what is needed, then we are clearly amiss. And I'll tell you right now, we're going to burn out. So Paul says, I can do all things through Messiah who strengthens me. That's from Philippians 4.13. He is the one that infuses into us the very things that he wants us to learn and to give by responding. We cannot possibly generate any kind of giving love unless it has first been given to us in the Hebraic sense, where it says, there is blank to me, yesly, or there is not blank to me, meaning ainly. Now, we learn from the Bible that we cannot give out what we do not possess. And what we do possess, it is given unto us for the purpose of giving it out. In other words, to take it in, turn it around, and send it back out. In other words, first, we must plug in to the source of all love, Yehovah, and in a sense, allow Yehovah to fill up our love tank. Then, and only then, are we able to efficiently run our love engine, so to speak, on the fuel that is in our love tank, so to speak. And this is precisely what I do not see in many relationships across the board. And this is coming from my own experience in life, that from my own conflicts and battles in relationships of all kinds, they often go sour, especially in marriage. Because one who is in a marriage or a partnership or in a group relationship of some kind, well, sometimes that one is expected to do all the giving and is expected to be ever patient and ever kind and always, always, always be the one that's just kind of the giver in the situation. And it's happening when there is nothing coming in from outside of ourselves to replenish us or fill us up. Why do you think Yeshua would excuse himself on many of the occasions that we read about in the narratives of the New Covenant? And he'd go out on some mountain to pray. He would be by himself. He's going to be alone because he's filling up, so to speak. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it, but he needed his me time. Well, okay, I understand that. And there are times when I need my me time in my marriage. There's time when you need your me time, not just in marriage, but also in friendships and in social settings. You just can't give and give and give and give without just getting a break and getting some me time. You got to get replenished. And so if we don't fill up our love tank, we're going to find ourselves running on fumes. 
or worse, running on empty. This creates personal burnout. We just burn out because our love tank goes empty. So if you find yourself in a relationship that could be classified as toxic, it might very well be that it's not actually the toxicity of the relationship in and of itself that's killing the relationship. I think we need to take a good, hard look at our spiritual love tank fuel gauge, so to speak, and from that, determine how much love fuel is in there. I want to continue here on 1 Corinthians 13, dealing with being wise as serpents and gentle or innocent as doves. But first, I want to take an important break. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. You're listening to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 74. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben-Mordechai. Okay, we're back. This is Avi Ben-Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. Going into the break, we were talking about that principle that we cannot possibly generate any kind of giving love unless it has been first given to us in the Hebraic sense that there is something to me, fill in the blank, that is in Hebrew, yeshli, or there is not something to me, fill in that blank, which is in Hebrew, ainly. Now, we learn if you find yourself in a relationship that could be classified as toxic, it might very well be that it's not actually the toxicity of the relationship in and of itself that's killing the relationship. We need to take a good, hard look at our spiritual love tank fuel gauge, so to speak, And if you or your partner, your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your family, whomever, if they're not responding, if they're just not doing anything, and the onus to show love is on you, and it's always on you, meaning their love tank is empty, and it's always put back on you that you're the one that has to do all the giving all the responding, all the everything, then as I would understand things, the one who has that empty love tank that just is not responding for nothing, it is unreasonable for that person to demand that you just keep on giving. For that person, they need to get that love tank filled up too, in the same way that you also need to get it filled up. So the one with the empty fuel tank of love, so to speak. That one needs to pull into the Word of God and prayer service station and get filled up with the divine fuel of truth. Because again, as Paul was saying in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Messiah who strengthens me. And if we can find ourselves doing that, That is a great first start 
to healing any relationship or any marriage for that matter. Now, let's take a look at more on this idea of biblical Hebraic love as it is sourced from above and not from below. I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 13.5, where we learn the following statement. Love does not behave rudely, as it is translated from Greek into English, with the New King James Version of the Bible. And if I were going to paraphrase this idea, I would say biblical giving love from above does not behave rudely. Now, I would suggest that you also consult some additional uh, New Testament translations just to get a rough idea of how these uh, words are flowing and kind of what they mean. But I would still ask the question, what does all of this mean? That biblical, divine, giving love does not behave rudely or does not act unbecomingly, as some of the translations will correctly render it from the Greek texts. What does it all mean? In New Testament Greek, the terminology for the statement that love does not act rudely is actually a term that means that love does not behave in an unseemly or unbecoming way. So this actually describes a standard of behavior that is considered to be disgraceful, dishonorable, and indecent. That's the idea that the Greek text is giving to us from 1 Corinthians 13.5 when the New King James Version translates that text as love does not behave rudely. It's not so much about being rude as it is more about showing a behavior that is disgraceful, dishonorable, and indecent. And those are behaviors that we will never, ever see with Jehovah towards us. Never. And therefore, we should not be responding with those kinds of behaviors towards Jehovah or even towards others. It just should not be that way. Now, let me make a second point. There is something that is called the LXX or the Septuagint. It is a Greek text written, you know, about uh, 100 to 250 years prior to the coming of Yeshua. This Greek text, this Septuagint, is a translation of the Hebrew Bible to the Greek language which was widely in use during the Hellenistic period, prior to and after Yeshua. The Jewish scholars in the Egyptian communities of Egypt at the time had to choose one or more Greek words that could best represent the Hebrew terminology of the Hebrew Bible that was used as Scripture. So the Greek words that these Jewish scholars chose was based on a Hebrew word that was already well-established as part of 
their local vocabulary. And this is what I think Paul was thinking about when he wrote 1 Corinthians 13.5, that love does not behave with disgrace or dishonor, nor is it indecent. Let us take a look at the Hebrew terminology that is supporting those English words, and it's that Hebrew terminology that is reflected in a Greek word that is used in that passage. Now, before we get too deep into this, again, I want to remind you that uh, what I'm going to explain next could get just a bit complicated. I'm hoping not, but I am asking you to try really hard to stay with me, don't zone out, and I'll do my best to make everything as clear as I can, okay? I wish I had some visuals to show you, but I don't. I'm relying strictly on audio, which makes it a bit more difficult. I'm going to explain and define four Hebrew words that I believe Paul was thinking about when he wrote 1 Corinthians 13.5. We will go into some detail of the Hebrew terms, and I will then tie them all together as we get through the next series of programs, which is all part of this series of studies I'm doing on 1 Corinthians 13. Now, keep in mind that I'm an English speaker, and the Hebrew letter Ein is not an easy letter to pronounce. Israelis and Arabs can say it with no problem because they just have it in them to be able to say it. But being that my mother tongue is English, it's just very difficult to say the sound of the Ein. And so I'm telling you this because when I say that this word sounds like this or that, I'm giving an approximation because in reality, I can't really pronounce it as accurately as I would like to because I am not an Arab and I am not a native-born Israeli, okay? I'm now going to give you these four Hebrew words as follows. The first Hebrew word is ara, ara. It's spelled ein, resh, hey, ara. It has a meaning of naked, exposed, and uncovered. Again, ara, naked, exposed, uncovered. The next word is erva, erva. This is spelled ein, resh, vav, hey, erva. And really, the only difference between ara and erva is the added vav in the word. That's really the only difference, okay? So, again, it is erva, ein, resh, vav, hey. Now, erva in Hebrew means something that is unbecoming and unseemly or indecent. Again, erva in Hebrew means something that is unbecoming and unseemly or indecent. The third word that I want to give to you is arum or arum. Arum 
or arum. That is spelled ein, resh, mem, that's arum, and arum, which is linked to it, is ein, resh, vav, mem. So again, the only difference between those two is the added vav in the word. So this is arum or arum. Now that word means cunning, crafty, shrewd, prudent, brilliant, and very wise. Now the fourth word that I want to share with you is bosh or busha. This is spelled bait, vab, sheen, or even bait, vab, sheen, hey. Okay? This is bosh or busha. Bait, vab, sheen, or bait, vab, sheen, hey. Now, this word bosh or busha, this means shamefulness, disappointment, and dishonor. Again, Bosh or busha, it means shamefulness, disappointment, and or dishonor. So let me do a summary to make sure that you are hopefully still with me, okay? And really, I would recommend that if you can, to take a little notepad or your iPad or or perhaps a piece of paper and a pen or pencil and just write these down, okay, if you can, because it will help you when we come back to these words in our study of 1 Corinthians 13.5. So again, the first word is ara, and it means naked, exposed, and or uncovered. The next word is erva. Erva, you're adding a hey in there, which is very similar to the first word I gave you, and that in Hebrew means something that is unbecoming, and unseemly, and indecent. And then for the summary, I have aram and arum. Aram and arum. And this word means cunning, crafty, shrewd, prudent, brilliant, and very, very wise. And then finally in my summary of these four Hebrew words, there is bosh or busha, bosh or busha. And this word actually refers to something that is shameful or is something that is filled with shamefulness or to be ashamed or even to be disappointed or to have a disappointment and also to be dishonorable or to have or show dishonor. Okay? So I don't want to go any more than that. I think you've got the general idea. So again, quickly, ara, naked and exposed, erva, unbecoming and unseemly, aram, cunning, crafty, shrewd, brilliant, wise, and bosh, busha, shamefulness, disappointment, dishonor. If you can get your head around these four words and pretty much follow along, then I think you're going to get a pretty good working understanding of what I'm going to be sharing with you through this study 
and the studies that are going to be following with this, okay? So what I want to do now is start with the third of the Hebrew words that I presented in my list. Again, the first word is ara, which is naked, exposed, and uncovered. The second word is erva, which is something that means to be unbecoming or unseemly or indecent. So again, let's take a look at the third word in this list I've given you, and that is aram and or arum. Aram and or arum, spelled ein reish mem, that's aram, and ein reish vav mem, that's arum. Again, the word is cunning, crafty, shrewd, prudent, brilliant, and very wise. Aram, ein reish mem, or arum, ein reish Vav Mem, both of those words, they appear in Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1. Both passages have the same exact word, the same exact root. Now, within some academic circles, Arum, Aram, and Ara are said to be related. However, there is no clear scholarly consensus that this is true, that ara, naked and exposed, and arum, cunning and crafty, are directly related. Not everybody's agreeing with that. The general consensus, and I specify the general consensus, is that the Hebrew words aram, and arum, being cunning or crafty, is unrelated to ara, meaning naked and exposed. Now, when I say unrelated, I mean it's not directly related to what is called the Hebrew root of that word. However, both words, ara, naked and exposed, and arum, cunning and crafty, might, and I stress, might be playing off of each other or bouncing off of each other or kind of what we would call a word play, which is why in Genesis 2.25, Adam and Eve are described as being naked or uncovered or exposed. But again, There is no well-defined agreement in the scholarly world, at least not one that I could find, that naked and cunning are in fact related to the same Hebrew root. They are two different words. So when you read Genesis 2.25, you are going to see that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. But I'm going to tell you that I don't think they were naked. It's not going to make any sense in the overall context. Essentially, what I'm doing is turning this whole Adam and Eve naked thing on its head. For the purposes of this study, I am taking the position that the Hebrew word arum means crafty, shrewd, 
brilliant and very wise, but it is not directly related to ara, which means naked and exposed. Again, that they are two different words in Hebrew and two different roots. Therefore, it would be my understanding, again, as I just told you, that Adam and Eve were not, I repeat, were not naked and uncovered, as most English texts will tell us from Genesis 2.25. Rather, instead, they were crafty, shrewd, brilliant, and very, very wise. That is my position. And from my study, this is going to make perfect sense. It is going to explain so much of what Yeshua said and what Paul said and what is written over and over and over again in so many places of the Hebrew scriptures of the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. It's all over the place. And scripturally, it supports the position that I'm talking about here on this show today. So in brief, with my saying that the two Hebrew words, ara, meaning naked and exposed, and erva, meaning unbecoming, unseemly, and indecent, that both words are not directly linked to the meaning of the Hebrew word arum, cunning and very wise. Why? Because of the local Genesis 3 context and the new covenant teachings of Yeshua, Yaakov, and Paul. This third word in my previously redacted list of the four Hebrew words that I gave you, that is the term arum, this appears in Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1, and it is not so much about a behavior that is unbecoming and unseemly and indecent, nor is it directly linked to being naked and exposed as some Hebrew linguists believe. Inferred or deduced? Yes, perhaps. Directly linked by Hebrew grammar? No. Instead, I am saying that Adam and Eve's nakedness and or unbecoming or indecent behavior is instead all about Adam and Eve giving a place for a serpentine philosophy to guide them into being cunning, crafty, and very wise from below. For Adam and Eve, it was all about two different kinds of wisdom. A wisdom from above versus a wisdom from below. And this would explain why Paul said in Colossians 2.8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the substances of the underlying natural world which is the meaning of that Greek word in Colossians 2.8, and not according to Messiah. This is Paul's answer to Genesis 2.25, that at first Adam and Eve were naked and exposed to a heavenly wisdom above, which is why Genesis 2.25 says that they were not ashamed. 
while the serpent was naked and exposed to an earthly wisdom that he developed below, which is why he was, indeed, walking in shame. So then, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.2, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, that is, earthly wisdom, not walking in craftiness, which was what the serpent was doing from his earthly lower world wisdom, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, which is what Yeshua, Paul, and Yaakov or James talked about, and so many others. Okay? Now, we're going to come back on the next podcast to Yeshua's statement when he said, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It will make a whole lot of sense to you. I think so. Paul knew these words in Hebrew, and so did the 70 scholars of Egypt who wrote the Septuagint, that is, the 70. They also knew these words very well. It was part of their vocabulary, being Jewish and speaking the mother tongue of Hebrew. So they had to bring these words over into Greek for the Hellenistic Jews of their time. That was a very hard job. I'm sure it was. Now, if you want any further information about anything here, go to my website at www.cominghome.co.il. And also, I encourage you to pick up some of the materials that are on that website, but in no way am I making any appeal for money or donations. I don't do that. So if you don't want to give, don't give. If you want to give, give. It's up to you. You pray about it, okay? I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. Real Israel Talk Radio.